0: As you guys head back to your seats, I want to encourage you to open, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. To Judges chapter 3, we are this morning continuing on in our series. Um, our series through the book of Judges entitled Broken Leaders and God's Unbroken Promise, and I want to just give you a heads up as you're turning there in your Bibles. Uh, after this week, we're going to take a few weeks um, away from the Book of Judges, uh, so don't worry, we'll be back. Uh, those those weeks will give you a chance to maybe read ahead and catch up a little bit. But uh, I'll be out of town next week, and so uh, our brother Jesse is actually going to be bringing the word from Psalm 130 next week, uh, and then after that, uh, we'll be Father's Day, and so going to going to. Switch gears a little bit for a Father's Day message. I'll be back for that. And then in three weeks, we're going to have our friend, uh, Pastor Michael, who's going to be bringing a word to us. Uh, And then we'll be back in the book of Judges and probably in the book of Judges for the remainder of the summer. But I want to, this morning, draw our attention to Judges chapter 3. And we're going to be introduced to our second judge, Ehud. And so I want to invite you to stand this morning as we read this entire story, Joshua chapter 3, beginning in verse 12 and reading through verse 30. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV this morning. And hear, hear the word of the Lord. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Amorites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, that's Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him, to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Listen, just get ready. Like, this is better than Braveheart right here, okay? And verse 17, and it says, And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed around the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and he did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea of faithful leadership in an idolatrous world. Faithful leadership in an idolatrous world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray as we hear from you and examine your word, Lord. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Hearts that are receptive, Lord. We pray. Pray, God, that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Faithful leadership in an idolatrous world. When... When God created the world, <clears throat> he created us humanity as unique creatures. Genesis 1 verses 27 and 28 tell us, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. And so when we think of the image of God that we bear, we often think of it in terms of what it means for us. In other words, we, we rightly ground the worth and the dignity and the value of every human being in the fact that we are first made by God and then more specifically made God In God's image and therefore we would contend and the Bible declares that there is worth and value and dignity in every human being and it surpasses the worth and the value and the dignity of any other created thing. That's why when we as image bearers see image bearers being treated as less than image bearers, we are forced because of the word of God and his image who we are made in to respond with righteousness and justice. We value people. But as we think about what the image of God means for us, we also cannot neglect what being made in the image of God calls us to. See, part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we are to act as his vice regents here on earth. We represent God on earth and we are to lead and rule in creation in such a way that we reflect the God whose image we are made in. We, we often miss that part in Genesis 1, 27, and 28, but there in verse 28 it says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So the image of God, I'm going somewhere with this, so stick with me, all right? The image of God does not only explain who we are, it also explains what we are called to do, to lead, to rule, and to reign over creation in obedience to God so that God gets the glory. Now we know the story sin entered the world a few chapters later. And in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve took that fruit and they ate it, they they brought about a divine curse that would be passed down to every human who would live after them, barring one. Now, what we have to understand is that when sin entered the world, it did not remove the image of God from us, but it tarnished the image of God. But the beauty of what Christ has done for us on the cross is that he is able, by his death and resurrection, to restore aspects of the image of God that were broken because of sin. And day by day, as we, we as Christians, as we are being sanctified, as we, we are being more conformed into the image of Christ, we are reflecting more of the image of God we are created in. And the, and the fact that Jesus is restoring us to the image that we were created in, it, it don't it doesn't only speak to who we are, but it speaks about what we are to do. So consider Second Corinthians five, seventeen through twenty. It, It's where we get our name, new breed, new creation. Paul writes this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Now, here it is, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us, and we plead on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. So, we in Christ, what we are meant to we are in Christ, I'm sorry, what we were meant to be in the garden. His ambassadors, his representatives, we are to lead and to reign as those made in the image of God while being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Now, you might be thinking, what in the world does it have to do with Judges 3? That wasn't just a rant about the image of God. Here's why I say all of that at the beginning. There are two reasons. First, we have to understand that as Christians, we have a, a creation mandate to lead. A creation mandate to lead. And, and I, listen, I know, I know the immediate temptation. For some of you, when I talked about faithful leadership in an idolatrous world, I read the title and some of y'all were like, phew, he ain't going to be talking about me. Because I'm not a leader, right? I'm not a pastor. I'm not a director, I'm not a CEO, I'm not a manager, this doesn't apply to me. But what we have to understand is that as Christians, we are all called to be ambassadors for Christ. We are called to be salt and light, we are called to see, to serve and to lead. We can lead in our homes, we can lead at our jobs, we can lead with our children, we can lead with our friend groups, we can lead at our schools. Basically, every Christian has a responsibility to lead by reflecting God as we fulfill what it means to be an image bearer. You tracking with me? Here's the second reason I mention all of this. The world desperately needs leaders. We live in a society that desperately needs leaders. You could put it like this. We live in a society that needs Christians to be Christians, but they don't want it. We live in a society that desperately needs leaders, but they don't want them. An old Anglican priest, he, he said it like this. This is for some of you who like some of the more academic stuff, and I'm going to give it in a different way after this. But he says, from Descartes to Kant, authority was once held responsible for binding and gagging of human reason. The Enlightenment, though, attempted to transfer the seas of authority from dogma to reason, from tradition to experience, from society to the individual. So let me give you the Michael translation. There was once a time where leadership was valued. But now we have shifted and nobody wants leaders. They want to be their own leader. They want to lead their life. They want to dictate truth. They want to dictate what is right. And so we have this push in our culture away from any and all authority. I mean, you feel it, don't you? It can't be just me. And the way we are salt and light is by both serving and leading in society. But I also believe, and we've got to acknowledge, that part of the culture's aversion to leadership, and I'll be honest, part of the church's aversion to leadership, is that we have seen the damaged cause when leaders abuse their leadership rather than serve others. And they attempt to serve themselves. And so in our text this morning, in the story of Ehud, We see a leader used by God to deliver the people when they could not deliver themselves. And in our text, what I want to focus on is, is six leadership principles learned through the story of Ehud. Now, let me let me just tell you why I'm taking this approach, because I think it's important. I'll be honest with you. I struggle with sermons like this, right? Six principles for leaders or six ways to be a better husband or what? I think there's a place for that. And maybe I got to undo some of my seminary training where you're not supposed to preach messages like this. But I'm going to tell you why, why I'm taking this approach of, of, of six principles for faithful leadership. It's because If you remember back to last week when we were introduced to the first judge, Othniel, we we noted how he was the pinnacle of all the judges, right? He's the paradigm through which we evaluate every judge who was to come. And what we saw in Othniel's story is that Othniel's barely mentioned at all. The emphasis is on God and God alone, and that God is the hero of the story. And we talked about the fact that when we are faithfully serving, the goal is that it won't elevate us, it'll elevate God. And so Othniel's barely talked about. But it's interesting that after setting that example in the story of Ehud, God is barely mentioned. And though Ehud is considered a faithful judge, right? It's not that it's because, well, Ehud must have been unfaithful if God's not talked about. It. No, the Bible holds him up as a faithful judge, but the emphasis is primarily on Ehud and not God. It has Esther-like vibes. You remember we preached through Esther a few months back, maybe a year ago now. We talked about how in every verse, every chapter, every line, God isn't mentioned one time in the story, but his fingerprints are all over it. We, we kind of get that feeling here with Ehud. And I believe that the reason Ehud is emphasized is because God wants us to see Ehud's faithfulness and wants his people to learn what it looks like to be a faithful leader who leads under the rule of a gracious God. Because remember, and we'll see this in just a moment, the reason they're in this situation in the first place is because of a lack of faithful leadership among the people. And so I wanna wanna jump in and, and give you these six Principles of leadership. I took more time on the introduction than I planned, so we're about to rapid fire some of these and hopefully draw out some truths that will encourage us and ideally point to Jesus along the way. So here's the first principle that I want you to see. Faithful leadership begins with obedience to God. Faithful leadership begins with obedience to God. Look back at verses 12 through 14. It says... And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms and the people served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. so, So at this point in the story, Othniel has died. Remember the cycle of sin, right? The the people get trapped in idolatry. They're they're captured by another nation. It's the consequence for their sin. After some amount of time, the people cry out for deliverance. God raises up a judge. The judge delivers, delivers them from their captive. But when the judge dies, the people go right back to the way they were before. So Othniel has passed at this time. And again, we see this pattern of sin. And it emphasizes what we talked about last week and what we'll see again this week. When the people cry out to God. It wasn't because they agreed with God that they were in sin and they were turning to the Lord in repentance. They were crying out to God because they didn't like the consequences. And as a result, they returned to their sin. And though the specific sin, most likely idolatry, is not mentioned twice in the first verse, the author emphasizes they did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So look, I know we hit on it a little bit last week, but let me pause and just hit on it a little bit more. See, that's the danger of only hating the consequences and not the sin. We will only seek out ways to avoid the consequences and not try to actually kill the sin. And what this will lead to is simply becoming more and more crafty at trying to cover sin to avoid earthly consequences but we know it won't work. The Bible tells us in Luke 12 verses 2 and 3, there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered. There is nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in an ear in, in, an ear in a private room will be proclaimed on the housetops. It might not be in this life, but it will come. And let's be honest for just a minute. There have been areas of sin in our life where we have hated the consequences more than we've hated the sin itself. And hating the consequence is never enough to overcome sin. And for the people, because they didn't actually hate the sin and because there was no one leading them to hate the sin, they fell right back into the same cycle. And what we will see throughout the story of Ehud is a man who was obedient, even when it could potentially cost him his life. But I want you to notice something that might be easily missed. Notice what it says there in the middle of verse 12. It says, And, and the, people did again, or the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Here it is. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. See, even in their rebellion, you see God's ultimate control. And it isn't just a control over his people. It's a control over everything, over every nation. It is a control over those who want him and those who don't want him. God is in complete control. Now, we can sit here and say, amen, yes, that's good, but we got to pause because if that's indeed who God is, why would we not be obedient to him? If God is the God who holds this world in the palm of his hands why would we not want to be obedient to that God and if If that is who God is and that God says something is good for us, we can trust that it is good for us. And if that God says that something will lead to blessings, then we can trust that the blessings will be received. But if God says that something is bad for us, we can trust that he is not withholding a good thing. And faithful leadership will always begin with a genuine belief and trust in the truth that what God says is best and that obedience to him will always produce the best possible thing in our lives. And that stands in stark contradiction to the leadership of this world. See, leadership, based on the Bible, is not the ability to do whatever you want. I mean, come on, we've wanted that. I want to be the boss at my job because then I get to tell everybody what to do. I I get to be the one who who dictates. I want to be the boss in my house. I was going to make a joke out of that. And I'm not because the spirit is good and working. I love you, Aaliyah. I'm the boss in my house. It's contrary to the leadership of this world. Faithful leadership means following who we truly need to follow. It's not how the world does things. It's not always what will bring the most acceptance from the world around us. It is being obedient to God even when it's not easy. And for the Christian, though it is so fundamental, we have to be reminded that obedience is not optional. Like, that was was your amen right there like obedience is not optional. We are not saved so that we can have peace to go and do whatever we want to do. The commands of Christ are not optional. And I know people don't like talking about that a lot anymore. But, but Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And we got to be honest as we consider leaders, many leaders even in the church have already disqualified themselves simply because they refuse to follow the most basic of commands. Like we, we judge it off the big ones, right? Well, I'm not out there sleeping around. I'm not committing adultery, I'm not addicted to pornography. I'm not stealing. I'm not using drugs. I'm not getting drunk all the time. Surely I'm good. Yeah, but what about that one about living a quiet and godly life? Like Twitter has disqualified so many pastors. Like I don't know how to reckon this desire to have a comment about everything when the Bible tells me to live a quiet and a godly life. Like I I don't know what to do with the fact that the Bible calls me to be kind And it seems like in the church you can't have a disagreement without anger and hatred. And I just have to believe that Jesus is looking at the church saying, if you love me, you will keep my commands, not just the big ones. Like sometimes the holiest thing we can do is just not be a jerk. And what we will see with Ehud is a leader who was genuinely obedient to what God had called him to. And we'll see that more as we flesh out these other principles. Here's the second principle that I want you to see this morning. Faithful leaders recognize God has equipped them to use them. Faithful leaders recognize that God has equipped them to use them. At some point, the screen will catch up with my iPad. Faithful leaders recognize that God has equipped them to use them. Look again at verses 15 through 17. It says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. That's about 18 inches. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Like, this isn't in my notes, but when the Bible calls you fat, like, you, you got to be fat. <laughs> like, I mean, they're putting this man on blast. All right. So we are introduced here for the first time to the judge. Ehud. Now, what's interesting, and and I want you to track with me here. Like, I, I'm encourage you if you've not been keeping up with the series. Like, these are really going to build off one another, so probably be a good idea to try to catch up as we move through this. But but I'll recap. What what's interesting is that outside of Othniel, the judge that we saw last week, none of the other judges are directly referenced as a deliverer or a savior of Israel. It's only Othniel and Ehud. So again, it gives you a picture of their faithfulness. He is a faithful judge. Like Othniel, he is one of the best judges. But, as, but did you notice how his description is different from Othniel's? So we can go back to Judges a few verses earlier, 3 verses 9 and 10, where it talks about Othniel. It says, The Israelites cried out to the Lord, so the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. Here it is. The Spirit of the Lord came on him. And he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over King cushan Rashothiam of Aram to him, so that Othniel overpowered him. So, so we talked about this last week—that how Othniel was an unlikely candidate for the role. He wasn't even from the same region, right? He's from the far south of Judah where the captivity is happening in the north. And so many commentators were like, why would God choose this guy? We talked about the fact that, that God's choices don't have to make sense to us. That it is just like our God to use the most unlikely of characters to do extraordinary things. But I want you to see with, with Ehud that that's not the case. Right? See, verse 10 tells us that, that the only power that Othniel had was that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That, that the Spirit of the Lord empowered him to fight and to conquer this king. It was the only credentials that man had to stand on. But notice how different Ehud is in his description. At no point does it say that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now, I'm not saying it didn't. I'm simply saying that the text doesn't emphasize it or mention it at all. But what the text does talk about is his skills. It says that Ehud was a left-handed Benjaminite. Now, at first glance, that might not mean much to you, but what the author is communicating is that this was a highly trained, skillful warrior. Well, where do you get that? Well, because the reference to left-handed Benjaminites in other places in the Old Testament tell us that these were ambidextrous warriors who were the best of the best. Like, The Benjaminites were known for their ability to fight with both hands. We see it in 1 Chronicles 12, verses 1 through 2. It says, The following were the men who came to David at Ziglag, while he was still banned from the presence of Saul, son of Kish. It says, They were among the warriors who helped him in battle. They were archers who could use either the right or the left hand, both to sling stones and shoot arrows from a bow. They were Saul's relatives from Benjamin. They come up again later in, our, in, in the book of Judges in chapter 20, verse 16, where it says there were 700 fit young men who were left-handed among all the troops. Listen to this. It says all could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So by all accounts, Ehud was the logical choice for who God would raise up. He was trained in fighting and he would be the one who would deliver Israel. Even the very name of Benjaminite means the right hand of God. So he is the right hand of God, but I want you to see he's willing to use the left hand. Right. I want you to get this. There are times when God will use us and the only thing that we have is the, spirit, is the power of the Spirit of God that is working in us. But there will also be times when God, where God has uniquely gifted us and that gifting is the means by which he wants to use us. Let me say it another way. Every person in this room who has been redeemed by Jesus has giftings and talents and abilities and strengths that were given to you by God to be used by God to bring him glory. And just to be clear, I'm not just talking about the giftings we think about for ministry. I'm not just talking about pastors or deacons or worship leaders or church leaders or staffs. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the artist and the banker and the manager and the student and the writer. Every good gift you have is from God and it is God and faithful leaders will recognize that God has uniquely gifted them or gifted you in order to serve him. Ehud was a Benjaminite again son of the right hand so while God was the right hand, Ehud was willing to use the left. Now, let me, let me just push in here a little bit. We have to be so careful for those of us who have a high view of God's sovereignty, that he is in control. We talked about it at the beginning. He holds everything in the palm of his hand. We have to be so sure that we don't, we don't justify our inactivity because God is sovereign. Like, yes, I am a believer that God is going to do everything that he wants to do. He will accomplish his plans with perfection. He's going to do it with me or without me. But it doesn't mean that I'll be faithful. And we need to make sure that we are serving God and using the gifts that God has given us for the glory of God so that he might work through us. Are you willing to be the left hand as he's the right? But I want want to mention this as well. When Ehud was being trained... I bet he had no idea how God was going to use him in the future. How the training, the struggle, the hardship would be used by God to later deliver Israel. And that serves as a good reminder for us that sometimes God is preparing us now for how he plans to use us later. And sometimes the hardship we are enduring now, the pain we are in now, the trial and the struggle is producing the endurance that we will need later. I don't have as long in ministry as some, even in this room, have in ministry. I have been privileged to serve as a pastor for 12 years, but I can tell you with surety that there have been moments that I have faced even recently that I would have crumbled under 10 years ago. And the reason that I can stand now is not because I figured out how to be so strong, but because God had to bring me through some stuff. And it hurt And it was painful and it stretched me, but it allowed me to endure when things got a little harder. Maybe God is preparing you now for how He plans to use you later. Here's the next principle faithful leaders avoid the idols of this world. Faithful leaders avoid the idols of this world look again at verses 18 and 19 it says and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute I'm sorry and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute he sent away the people who carried the tribute but he himself turned back to the idols near Gilgal and said I have a secret message for you O king and he commanded silence and all his attendants went out from his presence. So, so what's happened, right, is that God has called Ehud. Somehow along the way, Ehud knows that, that God is going to use him to be the deliverer. The story doesn't tell us, tell us how he knows or how God spoke to him or what happened. But we get a sense and we see it towards the end that he, he understands that God is using him. And so the people send him to pay tribute to this king who has captured them. Right? I mean, th- that's, a mess, that's a message all in itself. You want to serve idols, be prepared to pay the tribute that the idol is due. Okay, so, so Israel's is having to go and pay their tribute and they send, they send Ehud. He's the one who's gonna deliver the tribute and he's got people with him. And so he goes, he takes the tribute, he gives it to the king. A lot of commentators argue it was most likely grain, it was some sort of food. They're giving it to the king. He's a fat dude, he's hungry, okay? So they're giving him food. And he leaves with, with the people that brought the tribute. But he gets to Gilgal and the text, the text directly points us to the idols. And he says he gets to them. And he turns back. Now we got to unpack this a little bit. This shows the state of Israel. Those idols, it says, were at Gilgal. Do you know what makes this so devastating? Do you know what else was at Gilgal? The 12 stones of remembrance that Joshua had the people set up in Joshua 4. You remember that story The God, again, stopped the Jordan. He stopped water from flowing so that the Ark of the Covenant could pass by. They get through, right? They walk across it. And Joshua says, stop. Sends one man from each tribe back. Go get a stone. And I want you to walk back carrying it over your head. Remember, I love this. That's why I talk about it so much. Why? Because he said, somebody's going to ask you about the stone. And you don't get to tell them, this is what God did. This is when God stopped the water. This is when the Ark walked through. This is what God did. And they set up their idols, Next to the 12 stones of remembrance. Listen to me, God's work will never be properly remembered in the presence of idolatry. I'll say it like this, we have a tendency to want God over here, but not there. We want to worship God with this part of our life but we want to follow the world with this part of our life. And if there is one thing from this book, if there is anything that it is positioned to teach us, it is that it is impossible to worship God in anything else. And and make no mistake, our world has idols too. Our world worships fame and popularity. Our our, Our world worships a platform and Twitter followers. Our world worships sex and pleasure. Our world worships freedom and rights. And if this text, again, is positioned to teach us anything, it is that God and God alone is to be worshipped, and worshipping God and anything else alongside of him is not half-worship. It's complete idolatry. Amen. Just this week, we had an elected official advocating for Christian nationalism. Oh, yeah, we don't go there. Now, I want, I want you to hear me. I'm going to be transparent as I can be. I am so thankful to be a citizen of this nation. I am. I'm thankful to be... American. I have family members and friends who have served. I'm thankful for their service. I'm thankful for their sacrifice. I am grateful to live here. But I will not worship America. I cannot worship the Constitution and the rights that it outlines. I cannot and will not worship American freedom. And attaching God to it doesn't make it any more righteous. You cannot worship God and anything else. Again, half worship is complete idolatry. We are citizens of another kingdom first. We have a different king first. And he and he alone is worthy of our worship. And so Ehud stands before a remembrance of the true God. And he sees the idolatry of the nation. And he cannot let it stand. That leads to the fourth principle that I want you to see. Faithful leaders take God-ordained risks. Faithful leaders take god ordained risks so look at what it says beginning there in verse 20 reading through verse 25 and ehud came to him so he came to the king as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber and he had said i have a message from god for you and he rose from his seat and he had reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh And thrust it into his belly, and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them, and when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber, and they waited till they were embarrassed." But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened it, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Like, we, we cannot miss the fact. I apologize, that light flickering is bothering me, so I'm going to I'm gonna try to fix it at least for me. Sorry for you guys. Ehud was in a very risky situation. We can't miss that. Everything had to go exactly right for him to survive. He had to gain an audience with the king. Again, remember, this is where we see God's fingerprints. This isn't coincidence. He had to gain an audience with the king. Ideally, the king would be alone. He had to kill the king. He had to draw his weapon, use his weapon, and not be overpowered by a king who was clearly bigger than him. But on top of that, he had to escape, which was going to be gross because what the ESV translate in verse 23 as the porch is most likely... Better translated as the latrine. Like, my man had to crawl through the sewers to get out. I almost titled this message, Faithful Leaders Are Gonna Have to Go Through Some Mess, but I was gonna say something else. I was like, no, that's not appropriate. So I I didn't do that. I mean, he had to crawl through a sewer. It was messy. It was stinky. It was risky. The whole thing was scary, and a lot could go wrong. But it was what God had ordained, so he did it. And what Ehud understood, oh please hear this, what Ehud understood was that, a, was that a God-ordained risk is safer than world-given comfort. A God-ordained risk is safer than world-given comfort. And faithful leaders, leaders know this. Faithful Christians know this. God never promised this would be easy for us. God never said there wouldn't be a risk. I mean, the call to follow Jesus is literally a call to come and die and to find that you might truly live. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Those who want to live a godly life will face persecution. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Like like This has never been a walk in the park. And Jesus was clear about that. That's why he says count the costs. Like, I, I think Jesus will be shocked by some of our evangelism, right? Come one, come all. Trust Jesus. Just follow your feelings. Jesus is like, hold on. Stop. Let me make sure. Like, count the cost. I'm inviting you to come and die and find that you might truly live. But you got to die. And a faithful leader will understand that a God-ordained risk is safer than the comfort that this world provides. And, and for a faithful leader, righteousness will matter more. Leads to the, the fifth principle, picking up the pace a little bit. Faithful leaders model righteousness to those they lead. Faithful leaders model righteousness to those they lead. Look at verses 26 and 27. It said, Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols. There they are again. He passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. And while, when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. Faithful leaders model righteousness to those they lead. Now, I want you to see this. There is a beautiful interplay of words that can get lost in the English translation of this text. I, don't, I mean, I'm not saying y'all got to study languages. That's why I'm going to try to do it for you. But I don't want you to miss this. There's a beautiful interplay. That takes place. There are two times in this story that idols are mentioned. Do you remember them? So the first one was back in 19. We talked about it, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. So that's the first time they're mentioned. And then we see him again here in verse 26. Ehud escaped while they delayed. And the author wants us to know. He just throws this in there. It's not random though. And he passed beyond the idols. And so back in verse 19, when it says that he turned back, watch this, God's cool, I'm telling you, okay? It says that he turned back. That is the Hebrew word that is equivalent to the word repent. So he faces the idols and he repents. And then in verse 26, when it says that he passed beyond, that Hebrew word is equivalent to transgressing against or violating. So, so you have this judge who repents in front of the idols, and then violates the idols. What I'm trying to get you to see is that Ehud deals with idolatry the way that the people should have been dealing with idolatry. And in his actions, he is modeling what repentance looks like by turning from the idols, and what faithfulness looks like by violating and refusing to worship those idols. Idols. Ehud models what righteousness looks like and how the people should act, and his leadership paints a picture of what faithfulness requires. But I don't want you to miss this. Notice who he's with when he does it. Nobody. He he led in isolation. He knew what was righteous. He knew what was holy and he acted accordingly even though he acted alone. And I want to be transparent with you. There will be many times where if you are going to be faithful, if you are going to lead, if you are going to be salt and light in this world, there will be moments when modeling righteousness means that you will walk alone. Jesus warned us of this. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few will find it. If few find it, few are going to be walking it. And even with Ehud, We know that they followed him. They did follow him. The the Bible tells us towards the end there that he calls the people down. In verse 27, and he was their leader. But we know that they only followed him for as long as he was alive. Unfortunately, they didn't follow the righteousness that he modeled. But Ehud's faithfulness, watch this, was not determined by the response of the people. It was determined by his willingness to do what was faithful and righteous, even if he did it alone. And this leads to the final principle that I want you to see. Faithful leaders give God the glory. Faithful leaders give God the glory. Verse 28 through the end. He told them, follow me, I love this, Because the Lord has handed over your enemies. Not, y'all want to hear what I did? Y'all want to hear how I climbed through the sewers? You want to hear how I tricked the king? You want to hear how I trapped the king? You want to hear how I stabbed him in his gut? I couldn't even get the sword out. You want to know how he died? No, 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 no. The Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, even more humility to you. Not to me, to you. So they followed him. They captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and they did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day and the land had peace for 80 years. How easy it would have been for Ehud to have claimed the glory for himself. I mean, let's not act like that was an easy thing for him to say. That man fought harder for righteousness than any of us have probably ever fought in our lives. And if anyone would have been tempted to think, look how good I am, it was Ehud. He's not even mentioned in the praise. The Lord has done this and he's done it for you. You know, we live in a culture right now, let's be honest, where image is everything. You see it in ads on TV. You see it in the platforms that people want to build. We see it Instagram followers and filters and all of those things. Image is everything. We want to make ourselves look better. Even in the church, be candid about it. There is a celebrity culture in the church with these quote-unquote celebrity pastors that have followings that rival some, a lot of people that aren't in the church. They're the pastor to hundreds of thousands of people they've never met before that follow them online that they don't even know they're their pastor. And and I'm not, I'm not fully trying to knock celebrity. I, th- I think it's I don't think it's bad that pastors have platforms. I don't, I don't want it. I'm not creative enough to keep people interested in me. But there are some guys who are faithful with their platforms and they point people to Jesus and God has given them the platform so that they can give more glory to God. I'm not saying it's, it's bad in and of itself, but what I'm trying to get at is there is a temptation to elevate ourselves and to forget about God. There is, there is a temptation to take the good things that God has given us and act like we developed them on our own. There is a temptation to take the blessings that God has worked in our life and try to get people to praise us for his work. And we're going to see this a whole lot more when we get to Gideon in a few weeks. But a faithful leader will always understand where glory is due. And glory is always due to God and God alone. Now I'm running out of time. I had some more I wanted to say, but I'd be half a preacher if I didn't get to this part. So as amazing as Ehud was, as faithful of a leader as he was, just like Othniel, he is a lesser picture of a greater deliverer. Ehud was a stud, but he is a lesser picture of a greater deliverer because everything exemplary we see with Ehud, we see perfected in Jesus because Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though Jesus is God, he too was equipped. He was equipped with some humanity in order to redeem humanity. Jesus avoided the idolatry of this world. Indeed, he was tempted and tried as every person is, yet without sin. And the task set before him, oh, it was a risky task. He would suffer and die to redeem sinners like you and me. And in everything he did, he modeled righteousness because there was no sin in him. And in the garden, before the final act of obedience, we see Jesus giving glory to the Father where glory is due. Not my will, but yours. Be done. Ehud, as faithful as he was, as efficient of a leader as he was, though he saved Israel from their captors, there was a greater Savior needed to save the people from their sins. Because just like we saw last week in the very last verse of our text, it doesn't say that the people had peace. It said the land had peace. They weren't fighting, but those hearts were still rebelling. And what they needed was someone greater than Ehud. What they needed was Jesus. And if we are ever going to be what God has created us to be, the first act of obedience is trusting in that Jesus. It is believing that our sin separates us from God. Every one of us. There is none righteous. No, not one. Like it's easy to look down on Israel like, how could you? How could you set up idols right next to the stones and forget that we do the same thing? We, We need a savior and God loved us so much that he sent Jesus who was the perfect redeemer, the perfect deliverer, the perfect savior, the perfect judge. And he lived the perfect life that we should have lived, but we can't, to die the death that we deserve to die. And when Jesus died, God poured out all of his anger and wrath and hatred of sin on his son. And he died. And he was buried. And three days later, he raised from the dead. And we have hope because Christ is alive. And the first act of obedience, if we're ever going to be what God has created us to be, is to recognize how desperately we need a Savior and what God has done by providing one. And because of Jesus, you and I can be restored in seeking to honor God with all that we have. We can lead, we can serve, and we can give ourselves to make much of the great God who has saved our souls. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it proclaims. We thank you, God, for your kindness in that even though this word isn't ultimately about us, this book isn't about us, it's a testament to who you are and how faithful you are and how kind you are, that even in the midst of that, you are so good as to teach us how it is we can give you glory. And so I pray, Lord, that we, your people, would be faithful leaders for the gospel wherever you have placed us, in our homes, at our jobs, with our friends, at our schools, wherever that might be, that we would seek to lead, to fulfill the mandate we have as image bearers to represent you in all that we say and all that we do so that you and you alone receive the glory that is due your great name. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.